Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of The Bip Show is brought to you by Brookside Energy. Brookside Energy, one of the most exciting oil and gas companies listed on the ASX, is about to capitalize on record high oil and gas prices. With an existing solid production base and the first of over 20 planned new wells nearing production, Brookside Energy is about to join the ranks of top-tier Australian oil and gas producers. Brookside Energy, working with local communities to ensure sustainable growth and value creation through the safe and efficient development of energy assets. And now, on with the show. Hello, you're listening to The Bit Show. Bit is for business, investing and policy. That's what we're here to talk about. Don't forget to hit subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Paul Colgan, Director at CT Group, and I'm here on the line with James Whelan, Investment Manager at VFS Group. How are you, James? How are you now, Paul? Fantastic day here in Sydney and uh, really looking forward to this uh, this podcast ahead, mate. That's right. Sun's out, guns out. We are recording this on Monday, August 16th. Uh, about half of Australia is still in lockdown uh, this week. We are going to do a deep dive on the economics of the part of the economy that is hit hardest by all of this, hospitality. Our guest is one of Australia's most acclaimed chefs, now known around the world, uh, after appearing on the global Netflix hit The Final Table. He trained at the Maclay Street Bistro and later in France before he ran one of the most awarded restaurants in Australia, Mark in Sydney, uh, until he sold it five years ago. He now does uh, TV, um, has ventures on cruise ships, works with various high-end global hotel chains. He was once an electrician working on mines in WA, something, something I'm sure that would make a great episode of The Bip Show on its own. Uh, but he's a guy with diverse interests, as you'll see from his Twitter profile, at Mark Best. And he's also an avid photographer. But he's here to try and explain the economics of restaurants, uh, which, as we'll see, reach right across the Australian economy. Mark Best, welcome to The Bip Show. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Um, look, let's get right into it. Thousands of restaurants in, in Sydney and Melbourne are shut down. Uh, what is the impact going to be? How is this going to play out for the industry? First of all, I'd like to put myself up as the Nostradamus of the industry in that uh, I'm <laughs> very, very happy not to own a restaurant. I can tell you that uh, there's nothing that has more outgoings than a restaurant. So while my uh, income is poultry in comparison, cash flow, um, certainly my outgoings are uh, manageable. If you're running a restaurant at the moment, like what does it look like? Uh, look, I was um, trying to be positive, but dire, I think, is the word that I would say. Um, look, this has been, a, I guess, something that's um, been coming for us for many years. Um, we're talking about an industry that has had uh, diminishing, diminishing returns and uh, increasing rate of attrition in terms of uh, people coming into the industry. And uh, with, with COVID has just brought that into, 
into the spotlight um, and there's really, really nowhere to run. Yeah, it's um, it's incredibly tough uh, for them out there. Um, like, if so, if you can maybe talk me through how you would envisage, and I'm sure you talk to a lot of your a lot of mm. your industry colleagues about this. But what's involved in shutting down a restaurant, and then how easy is it for going to be for them to open up again? You're talking about your daily operation shutting down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Look, it's very difficult. I mean, at Mark, which is a fine dining restaurant, um, typically it would take four days um, between shutting down and restarting. Um, that was just the process of um, preparation, etc. Obviously, with a simpler uh, food offering, um, you know, that there would be a lesser time, but I would say it's a two-day minimum. And but plus the weight, the, the waste, etc. I mean, you're talking about... Um, you know, an industry with um, very little economy of scale, mostly for most of the operations. And so um, the actual costs of shutting down and then reopening are enormous and uh, would, you know, put your profitability behind um, for the month, um, way behind. And um, it'd be very, very difficult to catch up. And that's the that's the issue that increasingly it's becoming harder to, um, to, to catch up and... Uh, the amount of debt these um, operations are incurring is going to be difficult to to deal with. Yeah, and I suppose one of the things is a lot of them are kind of like small family businesses, right? They either run off uh, either a long-standing relationship with a bank, or you know, as um, as is not uncommon for uh, them to be financed out of a you know a family mortgage or something. Um, so that's going to be a, like a brutal, um, got to be, inflict a brutal cost um, uh, on on these people. Um, have you been talking to owners lately about you know how they're well, feeling and? Yeah, sure. Like even like you want to talk about a, a marquee chef, a marquee brand like Neil Perry, um, for whatever reason decided to jump back into the fray. Um, He's a bit like the Br'er Rabbit of uh, the restaurant industry. You know, he can't stay out of the briar patch. And uh, but you know, he's um, while well, he was able basically to cash in towards the end of his career by selling the Rockpool Group, um, he's um, now reinvested his own money back into Margaret and Double Bay, um, four million dollars evidently, and has uh, yet to be to be able to open. Um, and unable to open into the foreseeable future. So while you say we have a relationship with the banks, I mean, the relationship seems to only go one way. And uh, while you have enough collateral to sustain that relationship, they'll support you. But uh, there is a there is a point where they don't. Yeah. And um, the other thing is the people. So all these, you know, fantastic people that we come across when we're dining, um, mm. you know, uh, the front of house staff, um, you know, wait staff, all that kind of stuff there. Um, uh, you know, if you have regular places and I have one or two, um, you know, you kind of get to know these people and everything, but, you know, I haven't seen them now for months, uh, some of them, and, uh, uh, you know, you kind of worry about them. But obviously, you know, the prospects are not good in the short to medium term. Are people, um, you know, starting to leave the industry? Or would they be thinking about doing that? Um, yeah, um, this, is the, this is the thing about maintaining those relationships. I mean, a lot of the um, 
you know, smaller operations, uh, are basically just doing takeaway just to um, maintain some income. But a lot of it is about uh, keeping their um, their staff engaged because what's happening is that uh, when you're closing down, you're finding that less and less of your staff are uh, are, are coming back into the workforce. Um, so. Um, over this time, I was talking to you know several leading restaurateurs, and uh, they're just noticing that so many people are not uh, coming back into the industry. So each time you shut down for a week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, um, you're having um, less sort of human capital coming back. Um, yeah, and no, uh, it's really difficult. That, that, that and that's sort of what I wanted to go just just on the actual operations. I, I and thanks for coming on the show as well. It means it means a lot. The just talking about the logistics, I'm the guy who always wants to know about the operations and the yeah. actual the actual structure of doing things and running a business. Which, which, it, as much as it's making food and making people happy and bringing <laughs> such immense joy, it is still running a business at the end of it. Mm. And we're seeing now with with happening in Sydney now. I, I, and this is an anecdote because we need an economist on to tell us the actual bare bones of it. But I'm seeing that a lot of places that sprung back or even managed to to do the takeaway service during the last lockdown at this one now. They're just gone, and they've just they've just said that's it. We're not we're not opening. We're we're we're, we're fishing um, until pending notice, or they've just they've just disappeared. In Melbourne, I'm not sure that the numbers there on this on this time around are what they're going to be about people who are just going to say, you know what, this this just isn't going to happen. At what stage does it become a, you know what, the band aid has been torn off too slowly, and it's time to just just, just go and tear that off? Is, is there a, a number, a numeric area that's sort of in that? With staff, or has it just become? Look, it's in your heart, and it's just not time to go. Um, it's a big, big questions you're asking. A lot of, a <laughs> Sorry, lot, a lot of them. Yeah. Um, so, just to try and unpack that, um, one of the one of the things um, that you're sort of alluding to is profitability. Yeah, um, yeah. The profitability of, of takeaway model uh, is spurious. Um, you're, you're working with um, basically an industry that was happy to work on a national average of four percent uh, net profit. Yep. Um, and accountants and um, other businesses would, would laugh at that type of thing. I mean, it's barely profitable. It doesn't take much more than a strong wind or rainy day, let alone a, a, a pandemic to, to wipe that out. Um, in terms of uh, takeaway, um, while the first round of shutdowns um, was supported with JobKeeper, um, I did have spoken to a lot of people, a lot of uh, restaurateurs who said that Basically, it was a pretty good time actually, and that uh, people were spending like drunken sailors in terms of the wine list, etc. They had money yeah. in their pockets. This time around, um, they've a notice, noticeable uh, decrease in spend, um, significant up to you know fifty percent less. Um, so obviously, that's that's the issue. Um, and as and I think as COVID fatigue has set in, and uh, the numbers continue to grow on the Delta. Um, strain becomes uh, more prevalent and more easy to catch. People are, are more wary, etc. So um, the economics of running this takeaway model are uh, diminishing. I think some are still doing very, very well. I see they've um, they've they've nailed the offering. Um, others were unable to um, to engage um, their, I guess their their community with the offering that they had. So if you were if you were called upon to consult about a place in the reopening trade, and and this is a, a, again unplanned off the map here, so so I do yeah. apologise, but I think no, you, might, 
you might be able to handle it. If you were called on to consult for a restaurant that was looking at, at, at what they were going to do through the reopening, um, would there be any advice that you've got on that about how, how they're supposed to be reshaped or refashioned? Look, um, I'm known, known basically as a dream crusher, so because as soon as someone asks me about uh, opening a restaurant, I tell them not to do it. It's really only the, it's the only rational response. After, after that, we're just talking about hopes and dreams, you know, so. I've got a, um, I was just thinking about that 4% margin. I have a very good friend of mine who, Anytime someone tells him, oh, look, I'm thinking of quitting this and just going away and, and opening a little cafe somewhere, that, that, that he said, all you, effectively, all you're doing is, is going and buying yourself a wage um, yeah. and, and making your work at it. That that's, that that's it. That's no, there's no amazing dream of having the, the, the one place that's going to be, uh, you know, that, that's going to make you money the, the entire time. All you're having is just somewhere that will just keep you paid with a bit of bookwork and, uh, and, and you can do what you love, which is the important thing that's in there. So, look, you, 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 you. Everyone has a, a business plan, etc. But uh, most of it is driven by, you know, unicorns and rainbows. And <laughs> and even if you look at my my career, such as it is, I mean, I'm at the end of my career, and I don't own my own house, etc. Because that was, um, you know, that was on the line. That was what held up and propped up my career. So yes, I did buy myself a job and an illustrious job and some celebrity. But um, I'm thinking at this end of my career, perhaps the cost was too much. Wow. Yeah. It's like, it's rough. And I'm sure, Mark, there's a whole bunch of your industry colleagues who are wondering the same thing. And it kind of, it does make me think about, you know, uh, or maybe um, 2011, 2012, from my personal experience, it's just, this is just a survey of one, but that was kind of like the peak of, um, uh, you know, white linen dining in, in Sydney. Um and uh, lots of great restaurants started to slowly fold over the following years. Um, and then, you know, um, Mark shut down, uh, you know, Neil s- sold uh, Rockpool and things have become, maybe it's taste drove it a little bit, you know, and things became much more sort of, you know, the good restaurants were much more mainstream, if you like, rather than um, very fine dining. Um, uh, but I sort of wonder, you know, given the impact of this pandemic on uh, people's psychology, like where, where tastes might evolve to, um, have you any thoughts on that? And, and also the risk that restaurateurs, like uh, food entrepreneurs, might be willing to take. Um, because, you know, starting up a restaurant is such a big challenge and it's so much outlay, like you just mentioned with, with Perry's new thing. Um, what do you think about the, the next kind of step? Like when we do reopen, what what are there any trends that you think might that we might see? Um, look, I think what, one of the things about fine dining that that period you mentioned two thousand and ten two thousand eleven, um, which which is really the peak of the celebrity chef. You had um, world's fifty best etc. were getting going. Um, and you had marquee chefs, you know, like the, the Adria brothers, um, you had uh, Rena Redzepi's, the Massimo Baturas, etc. And this was really um, the amount of money uh, behind those, um, uh, not just the restaurants, but more, more the, say, the world's 50 best, um, uh, the Michelin Guide, etc. The amount of money and sponsorship um, 
that was behind them um, and the amount of publicity that they generated and garnered, this is what was really driving the fine dining industry. Um, and gradually, um, that was sort of seen as um, an elite construct and uh, basically you were, we're you know, we're, we're feeding feeding the 1%, you know, and um, it was elitist. And I think the zeitgeist is, has moved on and what's happened with the, um, the, the pandemic uh, is, again, it's, it's shown into sharp relief um, what went before and um, I guess the degree of uh, uh, elitism um, in our industry, etc. And uh, I think going forward, we're looking to lower cost economic models that are actually sustainable because one of the things that um, the customer is, I think, alluding to your questions before was uh, that customers are, are not willing to pay above a certain amount. Um, they see to a certain extent restaurants as a, a, a social service in a way and um, there's, a, there's a price that they're willing willing to pay for that um, and that price is not enough for businesses to be sustainable. So mm. the trend going forward is that um, I guess is competition drops away, you're going to go into a two-tiered system where you're going to have um, the higher-end restaurants are going to feed basically an elite clientele, your business, um, you know, your 1%, your top 2%, whatever, um, and the rest will be everyday restaurants which are going to have to be proved um, essential to their public in their, in their offering and at the price point. Uh, one of the things I'm really fascinated about is in in the past year, uh, and this will feed directly into how this all looks when uh, restaurants do manage to get open, whenever whenever that is. But uh, input prices have been going up, so particularly meat prices. So uh, we had uh, Tobin Gorey on from uh, the Commonwealth Bank a few months ago. Uh, which was a really interesting show. We talking through talking us through global food prices, um, but beef prices are very very high. Yeah, uh, I got some numbers here for you, Paul. If you want some, yeah, shoot. Uh, that's just come through. So, so Rural Bank dropped. Uh, this is this will take half a minute. Don't I? Rural Bank, Rural Bank, who I follow for cattle prices for our cows that we got down in Victoria, um, just sort of noted some things. Australian cattle prices continued to increase during July. Tighter supply and firmer demand was still providing support to the market. The Eastern Young Cattle Indicator, which is the one we follow, rose by 5.9% from the start of the month. With one month? Yeah, mate. It's a 6% month. This is it's, – it's bizarre. Well, it's not bizarre. It's exactly the way that we think it's going to be. Um, 1,004 cents per kilo in um, mid-July. Wetter month in Eastern Australia contributed to higher price growth. Um, heavy steers, yada, yada, yada. Western cattle don't care about that. So, look, that, 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 that was just the, bit, the cattle blurb. Um, yeah. On that one, so beef prices uh, go carry on. Paul, so, sorry. so Mark, so you're running a restaurant, right? You have your, um, you know, your your ingredients that you need to get in, um, uh, but consumers have certain expectations around price, right? So, um, to what extent do restaurants just have to eat it? Uh, uh, pardon, if you'll pardon the expression, I didn't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, um, but, <laughs> That's sorry, pretty. I'm really sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but, it's just the, the dad 
joke hour. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but to, to to what extent do they just have to um, yeah to 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 take that on board? Because to my mind, you know, there's a certain price that you know you expect a. A decent stake at and probably something like forty dollars, you know, uh, unless you're at a higher end place where there's a big, big beef menu and you're willing to go up to Wagyu's, etc. Um, but to what extent do restaurants just have to take that on the chin when it happens? Uh, well, the cost of goods is something that you have to take on. You have to work into your menu, but um, uh, there is that psychological limit for the consumer. Like if whether you talk about uh, depending where it is, which suburb, you know, which demographic it's feeding. I mean, you, whether you're the $30 main, the $40 main, the 50 or the 60 or you're into the higher-end restaurants where you can perhaps have marquee brands of beef, um, Rangers Valley or something, you know, out of uh, Wagyu, out of Japan, etc., um, where you can perhaps charge um, a cost-plus model at least, get something back. Um, but... The, the issue is that not only the restaurateurs, but going back even through to the suppliers and uh, and through to the producers, no one's making any margin. Like right down the, right down the chain. I mean, I work with a, a lamb brand, um, and it's it's a brand new brand. We're trying to to break into the into the market. It's extremely difficult um, to charge what what. Um, what is required once you know you get from the abattoir and transport costs, um, and through to the through to the suppliers, and um, and then added costs there, and um, you know we're barely barely able to break even on that. Wow. Um, and then so and even those prices are, are too are too much for uh, for most restaurants because they are capped by the psychological limit that they they feel that their customers will pay to for continued custom. So it's become increasingly difficult to um, to maintain the, the, the same product um, at that price point. And I think what's going to happen is the consumers are going to have to, I think the trending towards um, less restaurants, which I think is probably a good thing because um, competition is what's keeping the, the price down. Mm. Um, and certainly... I think that we need probably uh, a grade of cost of entry into the into the industry as well, which is going to mean a certain type of restaurant um, where it's going to be you know big money. So the smaller, more interesting places are going to become less uh, prevalent in the market. Well, that's that's noted. Anything on uh, plant based that you're seeing, Mark, through through there, just on the the, the input pressures that are on beef, along with the ethical. Yeah, the, the, the situation that's there. If if you've got anything at all, any insight into the plant based phenomenon, mate, I, I'm all ears on it too. Because there's a few investments out there that, that plant plant based replacement. Yes, meat replacement products. Yeah, um, I don't see them making any inroads whatsoever into the industry at the moment. Uh, plant based. Um, I'm seeing still a huge demand for um, livestock in terms of beef. Uh, lamb, pork, etc. I don't see any waning um, uh, demand in terms of the customer there. Um, there's a natural suspicion for meat replacement products, especially um, some of the more technical ones out of the US um, in terms of what's in them. Um, people, the customers certainly 
are very, very happy to take up a plant-based venue, but um, things like um, organic and, um, I guess, knowledge of the the supply chain back to the grower are very important to to chefs and, uh, and their customer base. So they want to... They want to eat vegetables out of the ground and know where they came from and what uh, what goes into that ground. That's the most important thing. So, seeing soy based uh, soy based or synthesised products coming out of the US, um, you know, backed by Bill Gates, is not really um, helping either. You're, 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 <laughs> yeah, to- you're, you're speaking my language there, Mark. Um, yeah. I just like <laughs> this this whole thing. I just you know. Asking for a steak and okay, well, we'll bring you as a surprise. Um, <laughs> you know. But what about uh, so the, the, the vegetable revolution is not the revolution, but I think that just having a menu that that, that is more vegetarian um, or more, with doing more interesting things with 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 vegetables is. I, I am seeing it as being it's it's a nice it's a nice change, and I think that it's got somewhere to go. I mean, I love a steak as much as the next man, but uh, well, look, some of the great great cuisines in the world are vegetarian. Um, look at um, out of uh, out of India, China, etc., um, just as two of the two of the biggest. Um, so, you know, there's so much there's so much to do, and it's so interesting, so inventive. I don't see it as um, replacing beef or lamb or pork, etc. I just see it as um, a, a more diverse and interesting uh, restaurant scape. Will surely be interesting. One of the things, uh, Mark, that has been really interesting um, and a huge feature um, uh, of the restaurant industry is uh, how many of the people in uh, uh, in Australia, uh, in the Australian industry, come from overseas. And obviously, uh, in the last year, um, borders have been closed. Right, so. Um, uh, you know, we, there, there's, um, there's been a lot of talk, obviously we touched on it earlier, but about um, labour shortages in the hospitality in the hospitality industry. Um, and we heard a bit of that. Obviously, it's been a huge thing in the United States. Um, but when uh, we heard bits and pieces of it uh, around Sydney when um, things opened up in the first half of this year, um a complex question for you, I suppose. Um, but what do you think can be done uh, in terms of a policy level um, over the next few years to try and make sure that there's a, a strong, healthy hospitality industry into the future? Because obviously it's not just important for those of us who live here, but for people coming from overseas, certainly one of the great surprises, I think, is the um, diversity and uh, quality of Australian cuisine you know wherever you go around the country um so um what do you think you'd like to see um at a policy level you know immigration whether it's taxes whether it's other things that government can do to um at all levels to to help support a a great uh, restaurant industry going forward you like to pack it in don't you mate (laughs) um so um look the biggest thing was seeing that the, the shortage, uh, um, the labour shortage in the, the industry, um, the first thing that people did, uh, especially towards the right-leaning, uh, my right-leaning colleagues were to call into question the fact that we're closing the borders and what they're looking for, especially the bigger operations, is um, a low-cost workforce. 
but what you're seeing around the world, um, if if we're stopping uh, we're stopping chefs coming in because of our our um, immigration policies, um, but why is the same problem happening in uh, in the US? The same problem happening in the UK, France, etc. I mean, every my my colleagues around the world are all crying the same uh, the same thing, um, and I think it's just the fact that a lot of it is about the the zeitgeist has sort of moved on, and um, people that sort of that master chef effect that, that um, is waning. So you had competition um, vastly outstripping supply, and no one was putting money into um, into training. So going forward, I would like to see the government put um, enormous uh, money into the training system. We've got a, our TAFE system, um, which is basically the only one that's completely broken and, uh, and inept. Um, it doesn't, um, go anywhere near, um, meeting the needs of the, of the industry, especially the, uh, the restaurant industry. Um, really? No. Nah. It's absolutely, it's absolutely hopeless. The base level that they're working at um, is not even close to what the industry requires. Um, they don't come out. I'd be, like to see some sort of system like uh, perhaps if you're looking at um, upper end restaurants like in America, the CIA, um, Culinary Institute of America, um, is fantastic putting out quality candidates. Uh, the French are extremely good with their cooking schools as well. Um, the UK not not so much, um, but basically you've got to be careful to um, not conflate um, the labour shortages uh, with um, people wanting just a low cost workforce, um, and um, and those requiring um, quality quality uh, candidates for, to fill their kitchens. They're very different, uh, different uh, ideas. Yeah. So, um, can you talk about some of the specific skills that uh, need to be developed developed that you don't see from uh, people leaving the TAFE system? Yeah, I'd, I'd I'd really love some detail on that if you've got something, Mark. Um, so, the TAFE system uh, basically trains people uh, to a very very basic level. So then we were we were um, there are other other um, bodies came in that were um, like uh, uh, Billy Blue, the Cordon Bleu, um, etc. Even the Cordon Bleu, which was a very, very um, expensive course that um, people could put their kids through, especially out of places like Singapore. Um, there were, you know, a lot. Um, there were big Cordon Bleu made big inroads there. Um, those young chefs coming out of there, um, even if they said they're a Cordon Bleu chef, um, basically they would come to me and I'd say, well, that's fantastic, but you're basically starting at the bottom. Yeah. Um, and so what we need is um, a hell of a lot more uh, vocational investment um, so that we can reach a degree of uh, a degree of skill in the craft that uh, people can basically hit the ground running. Um, the apprenticeship scheme that I went through. I mean, um, I was an electrician and then I was a chef and I did two apprenticeships. And um, I think that the apprenticeships um, system is completely broken um, since then um, with, I think, I guess that's the, 
amount of investment in TAFE, uh, meeting uh, a lot of the the wage accord in terms of apprentices sometimes um, earning more money than uh, some of your senior senior chefs. Yes, yeah. just, just through the wage system, and so um, chefs were. Um, restaurants were unable to afford apprentices because they were no longer able to um, afford um, to training. They started at a very low level and apprentices actually cost a lot of money um, because they're just not efficient. You know, it takes a long time to get a worker up to up to speed and up to efficiency um, in, in an operation. Um, and and again, I'm not. I'm not advocating that we go back to you know indentureships where people were paid next to nothing. Um, which you know, I remember starting at um, $160 a week at Maclay Street, mm. um, but I was you know 25 years old, and and that was even difficult even then. And I had to work on the side as, as an electrician. And since then, that was in the uh, late 80s. I mean, Sydney, obviously living in Sydney is now almost impossible. Um, I mean, at least we could um, we could have share housing, etc. then, but that's not even an option anymore. So um, even, even with restaurants paying their staff um, a very good minimum wage, is that a livable wage in Sydney or Melbourne or other urban environments? No, it's not. You know, so that's, that's the issue. Yeah. I don't know how you solve that. It's um, it's it's certainly very tough, and definitely the um, cost of living is a major factor, particularly um, in a city like Sydney. Uh, before we go on, a quick word from our sponsor. Uh, our sponsor uh, at the moment uh, is Brookside Energy, an exciting ESG-focused ASX-listed oil and gas company. Record high oil and gas prices, an existing solid production base, and the first of over twenty planned wells about to come on production make Brookside Energy a compelling story. Back to our conversation. Uh, so, um, Mark, what, one thing I um, uh, just want to think about, just me, if it, we're doing a bit of crystal ball gazing here, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's about, it's, I touched on a little bit earlier, um, but it's about customers. And, um, you know, I just wanted to maybe talk about city economies um, you know, we've seen this huge drop off in visitors to CBDs. Melbourne is apparently a ghost town, which makes me really sad. Um, I love, uh, you know, strolling around Melbourne and finding somewhere good to eat and drink in an evening. Um, but uh, even back here in Sydney, uh, at the peak after Sydney reopened, the football, footfall and transport data showed numbers of people coming into the city were about 30% lower than they were before. Um, and I just wonder about that thing of, you know, if the dining economy can provide the same diversity and quality um, of those economies of scale, you know, the whole thing, people walking in off the street, uh, it certainly wouldn't have applied to Mark. Um, uh, but, you know, uh, at the higher end waiting list for bookings, you know, um, the hard to get seats at tables. Um, if populations in CBDs are smaller than in the past, what will the impacts be? Um, well, well, basically the operations will, will close. Um, so the restaurant industry and bars and hospitality industry is extremely um, good at responding 
um, and uh, quick, quickly responding to, I guess, market forces and demographic changes. And so the CBD um, is now basically uh, responding to the fact that um, many of the large office towers are only now partially uh, populated with so many people working from home and um, and maybe a lot of them unlikely to return to full capacity. And you're also doubling that up with the um, complete death of the tourism, overseas tourism. So there's no longer the demand in the CBD, but what we're seeing uh, popping up is, um, I guess, suburban restaurants as people are working from home and staying within their, within their municipalities is that the suburban restaurant, the rise and rise of the suburban restaurant um, and even regional restaurants. Um, we talked about the cost of living in, in urban environments. What you've seen is um, a lot of kids, a lot of young people that have returned to their hometowns and um, uh, propping up the hospitality operations in their hometowns and they're unlikely to return. And I've spoken to even my friends, uh, uh, good friend in Los Angeles, um, good friend in Los Angeles who uh, said exactly the same thing that, um, you know, with COVID and all the strife in Los Angeles that a lot of people um, have just returned to their hometowns in Kansas, etc., and unlikely to come back. I mean, the sort of those urban environments have just lost their luster. And I think the same is happening with um, in Sydney and Melbourne that um, we're unlikely to see that uh, continued influx of young people as they um, get to understand and love um, the country environment where they've come come from. Yeah, it's tough, isn't it? Um, we had uh, we had a guy on from San Francisco as a guest, but Ben Eifert, um, he runs yeah. a quant fund, fund a few weeks ago. And he was saying he's in uh, downtown San Francisco and he was saying the, the area is just dead. Um, e- even though, you know, people are vaccinated, uh, you know, the U.S. has done a good job of, you know, uh, in you know Delta, Delta notwithstanding, um, it's done a really good job of, um, of managing to get to some kind of semblance of normal life in terms of freedoms and restrictions, but the downtown San Francisco is dead. And I just can't imagine that being uh, good for the restaurant industry, you know, um, it's going to be really tough. And I think, um, uh, you know, that whole thing of you were, you were talking about earlier, 10 years ago, you know, restaurants feeding the 1%. If there are smaller numbers of high quality restaurants, they're going to be harder to get into for the, um, number of people who still want those kind of experiences. You know, if you take, you know, call it 20, 30% of them out, um, there's not that many of them anyway, you know. So uh-huh. so the tables are going to get more and more uh, exclusive and um, and hard to get to. Yes, I think it's like, I, I don't know about you, but I think um, I, I feel that at times like this, there are more important things that are on our mind. And I think that is in the general, the general public as well that, you um, you know, um, having uh, hunger games for the best uh, for the best tables is it's just not top of mind anymore. I think things have changed and things have moved on. Whether that will recover is another thing. I think um, that we're in a in a cycle where things are going to become uh, what you've seen with these troubled times: the, the rise of nativism, etc. That you know, people are just turning to their home and hearth and um, a different outlook on. On life, etc. 
Um, you know, maybe, maybe we can um, lighten the mood uh, a little yeah. bit, um, but just heading towards <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, just during lockdown. Um, what are you cooking? Uh, what do you enjoy doing at the moment? I enjoy doing at the moment. Yeah, um, food wise, look, I've, I've never cooked. I've never cooked so much at home in all my life. I mean, obviously, uh, cooking in restaurants and uh, cooking in restaurants and cooking in restaurants and cooking at home are in the entirely, um, entirely different disciplines. So um, I really actually enjoy cooking at home and just cooking very, just very simple, nutritious stuff. And um, you know, I've never. Never lost my love of uh, I've lost my love of cooking. Um, perhaps uh, running restaurants maybe uh, put a bit of lid a bit of a lid on the passion, but that was uh, the small the, the small business side of it. As a small business operator, um, can often get in the way of your your passion for the crafts. So you've rediscovered it a little bit. Do you, do you think? Yeah, I think in yeah, the last five years, I've just really reengaged with. Um, uh, with cooking intrinsically and, and just the craft of it. You know, I've been baking baking uh, croissants at home and sourdough bread like everyone else and fermenting <laughs> and making my own vinegars and, you know, so, yeah, it's just, just interesting. You know, I, I love it. So I come from a long, long, long line of, um, you know, Barossa Valley cooks going back to, to Poland in the 1860s. So, um you know, um, I have that. Uh, I have that in my blood. And uh, you, you must be loving the seafood prices um, at the moment. Um, I, I think that seems expensive. <laughs> I, I, um, my wife Valerie is. Um, she's in a bodybuilding competition, so she's been eating. She can only eat white fish at night. So I've been. Uh, I costed it out that her, her barcode is um, 25 bucks a portion. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I've been, I've been eating the cheaper cuts so I can afford it. Um, um, what are your favorite things to cook uh, at the moment? Um, just in terms of dinners. Just in terms of dinners, um, always the, the classic, uh, the classic roast chicken um, is always a favorite. Um, uh, I tend to I tend to like to get the blowtorch out and uh, shrink the skin and dry it out and get it super crispy and then I spray it with uh, one of those olive oil sprays and so I can just coat it with uh, uh, this Japanese this Japanese sprinkle which is chili and sesame and uh, dried garlic and onions over the top. It's absolutely delicious. And do you stuff it with anything? No, no, I don't stuff it. Um, Stuffing just sort of slows down the cooking process for me. So if I'm going to make a stuffing, I'll cook it separately. Right, right. Um, and uh, what about what about the fish? What do you serve those up with? Um, and to usually, uh, I've been enjoying just uh, roasting a lot of things from the brassica family. So you know, like even broccolinis or broccoli or cauliflower or different cabbages, Brussels sprouts. Um, again, just with uh, flaked Korean chili um, and just roasting that in a hot oven and serving that with the steamed fish. Absolutely delicious. Just, uh, I guess, this is purity of the flavour and the caramelisation of the sugars in those little little cabbage uh, cabbages are just amazing. So it's just a different way of cooking things. 
Yeah, fantastic. Uh, um, and I heard somewhere that you've got a knife that's made out of a meteorite. Is that true? Uh, it's in the past tense. Um, well, I tried to do to something. It? I tried to do something stupid with it. Oh no! And, uh, because it was so hard, it shattered into a thousand pieces. What? Which is sort of nice in a way. Yeah. Given it, it, it sort of nice in that it came from a meteorite. So now that it's in a thousand pieces, I think it's continued on its journey. <laughs> when you say you tried to do, can you can you go into detail of what you did with it? I've embarrassed myself. Yeah, right. I um, I used it as a as a lever on something in a bone, and um, it just that uh, that that cross leverage just <laughs> made it shatter into a thousand pieces. <laughs> Goodness was me. it was it was a rookie error, and I would have beat anyone else to death with the handle that had done it. But you know, give myself, I had to give myself a pass. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so. <clears throat> Speaking of um, uh, rookie errors, um, tell me uh, one or two of the things you really hate to see uh, people doing uh, when they're cooking food. Oh, it's such a long list. <laughs> um, look, I think I think the internet is uh, where good recipes go to die. Um, I've always. Um, Basically, uh, basically taught on principle um, rather than recipes. So people are addicted to recipes. Um, one of the things I think is that uh, people tend to cook a recipe once and then move on to another recipe, and it's just really not the way that you increase your skill level. Um, you become increasingly addicted uh, to the possibility of a new recipe um, with a, a lesser result. So the best things you'll notice that cooks um, do is when they cook something repeatedly, uh, which I guess replicates the process of a professional chef who, you know, perhaps will invest, will cook something a thousand times. You know, so it's no wonder that you're good at it. <laughs> um, so it's a bit like uh, playing the guitar or the piano. So the, the more you do it, the, the hand memory, etc., just comes into it, gives you that sort of fluency. Yeah, certainly very interesting. Just um, yeah, I, I, I look. Um, thank you for. I, and having said that, if I ever see another fucking Ottolenghi salad anywhere, it'll be too soon. <laughs> yeah, um, you're, you're confirming my priors as well because I have a few staples, you know, that I'll just <laughs> uh, just try to make sure that I, um, you know, try to find things that I can't f up and um, uh, learn to do them well rather than uh, mm. being wildly experimental, um, you know. Try to get... Stop Stop flipping the steak. Oh, Leave yeah. the steak alone. So, so this, is, this is the thing. Now, James had to pop off, and I'm absolutely yeah. devastated that he's not here for this. Um, is he a flipper? Yeah. Well, yeah. So when we were talking with Tobin Gory about steaks, mm. uh, James said... Uh, and I have sledged him a couple of times on the show since, right about this, um, that he started turning his steaks four times. Um, after He had some conversation with an Argentinian or some South American who said, yeah, give it a minute once this and then a minute on the other side and then a minute on the other side and then one more minute on the other side. And I was horrified by this. So can you please tell me how wrong he is? Um, poor James. He's not here to defend himself, but he's 100% wrong. Um, I, t I will cook it on one side the most 
Um, we even had, uh, so the thinner the steak, um, the more you cook it on one side to get the caramelization. We even used to serve um, thin slivers of Wagyu that um, we would only cook it on one side. So we'd put it straight onto the hot plate, um, which was running at about a thousand degrees and cook it literally for seconds on there, but only one side be raw on the other. So in that way, you can get the caramelization, which is what it's all about. So when you start flipping it, the first time you flip it, already you've rendered the interior into the realms of mystery. No one knows what happens after that. So if you're cooking it one side down, at least you can see the raw side. You can see where how the heat is rising up through the steak. And basically you cook it all on one side and you can view the, basically the cooking temperature, the strata of the temperatures that rises through it. And then you just flip it over and just uh, maybe 20% of the cooking time on the second side. It's music to my ears, um, and I'm 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 genuinely. That applies to everything: fish, lamb chops, you name it. Applies to everything. Oh, really? Yeah. So just watch the watch the the the, the flesh um, starting to cook um, on the bottom, and yes, yeah, then... so obviously you moderate your temperatures. Even if you're cooking a piece of uh, you know salmon on the skin, you just cook it on the skin almost the entire way, and perhaps for the final fifteen seconds, flip it over just to uh, just to seal the other side. Yeah, right. If you were cooking a steak, this is my last question for you. If you were cooking a steak at home, like a a decent grass fed steak or whatever, um, yeah. how would you how would you prepare it? Would you do much to it? Um, always just usually Murray River salt, uh, plenty of it. Um, so I even I can guess it now. I've got measuring eyes after all this time. But um, for your for your consumer. Two um, percent is the is the figure. So if you've got a one kilo steak, you need to put twenty grams of sugar, uh, twenty grams of salt onto it. Wow! So two percent, two percent is the magic is the magic percentage where we perceive that things are, are well seasoned. Try it in anything. Oh wow! I've got to got to do that. Yeah, you're going to do that. So even potatoes. But if you if you if you got water with your potatoes, you have to include the total weight of all ingredients. Right. Right. You got it? Yep. So um, anyway, so if I get a nice, a lovely piece of uh, steak, currently I'm in love with um, retired dairy steaks, which are fantastic. Um, And so, you know, get a big steak, plenty of salt, and I season it. And again, this is going to blow James's mind. I season it way ahead of time, maybe up to two hours ahead, um, which would be contrary to his belief systems, I'm sure. And what that does is basically it's like a dry brine. So basically the salt starts to uh, to penetrate the steak and season it. And it gives a, a really well-rounded season seasoning to it. And it draws out some of the proteins onto the surface, which allows it to caramelize um, better and easier. I think I'm going to have to try this tonight. And then, then I, if I'm cooking a big fat steak like that, um, I love my little green egg, which I use at hardwood charcoal. So just that, that smoke and that flame um, is absolutely perfect. Right. And you do this on the, on, on the barbecue. So you have a, a, your little green egg, you get that going yeah. beforehand? Or, um... why, I love, why I love those, that type of uh, barbecue is even like a Weber is that you can control the flame. So even if it's got a lot of fat on it, um, it's basically an oxygen-starved environment, so it stops it flaming up 
you don't want the flame. You just want the heat from the coals and the the smoke from when the fat drips and the coals flavoring it. Um, you don't want any flame at all because that's when it tastes, you know, almost like a petroleum like um, after flavor. Fantastic. I think I'm ready for um, ready. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm ready to go. If um, I could just teach one person one thing at a day, I mean, I'm happy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, this has been uh, fantastic, and it's great to uh, after um, what I think was uh, pretty. Um, worrying conversation it's a serious topic um food is very important to all of us and i think some of our all of our uh, favorite uh, moments in life are um around a table um, yeah mine too 100 percent. but you know you, you're talking about an industry in crisis and so it's hard to have happy conversations all the time yeah and it's good to be able to have frank uh, conversations and also great to have you know, somebody who's been uh, so successful and is such a great uh, standard bearer for the industry as well. Uh, Mark, it's been great uh, having you on. I just want to be a sort of advocate for, be an advocate for, um, for truth. You know, we see so many people going into the industry um, and it's good that they're excited and they're following a passion for food wherever that came from, but I want them to go into it with a, a more of a pragmatic mindset and actually have sat down and done a business plan that they that they adhere to. And I would like to see less attrition in the industry and, um, you know, the money there, and it's usually their personal savings that are going um, into other people's pockets, and I want to see less of that. Yeah, and no doubt. And I think um, for... Um you know the uh, the the sake of the industry. Like we've been so blessed in Australia uh, to have all these different influences come together. Um, and I know uh, anytime I go home to Ireland after about ten days, um, I start really wanting the taste of like citruses and you know lemon in my food again. You know, like uh, uh, all that fresh. Um, uh, Australian uh, stuff that we get, and uh, mm. we're so we've been so lucky, um, yeah. and uh, you know to make sure that this uh, that the uh, all of that offering is uh, can come to life again once uh, once we get uh, once we eventually get things uh, uh, going uh, back uh, back in the, in the same direction. I think uh, it's going to need a lot of input um, and a yeah. lot of leadership from people. And I, like you say, you know, people being pragmatic. Uh, and open-eyed about um, the challenges with running uh, Look, the, the, the thing is that the restaurant industry will it's the, the restaurant industry itself like as as a as an idea is not in crisis it's always going to it's always going to be here the crisis is whether the people involved now will be part of it mm. and that's the, the the restaurant industry and the will will always respond to the market whatever it is, whenever that is, it, there will be, there will be some form, but, um, you know, it's just, we're trying to, the difficulty is now is the people that are involved now, whether they will be part of the future. And that's, that's where the crisis is. Uh, this has been a terrific conversation. Just a reminder that, uh, this season of the BIP show is brought to you by Brookside Energy, one of the most exciting, sustainable growth oil and gas companies listed on the ASX for investors wanting exposure to rising oil and gas prices. The stock code is BRK. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate us and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, You can find us on iTunes at The Bip Show or wherever wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Twitter. It's at the underscore Bip underscore show. 
And we're on Facebook too. Just search The Bip Show. Uh, James has a website which is now hosting all the extras uh, we can't get to on the show, uh, including a few trades and positions. Uh, just Google Wheel and Capital, follow the links to The Bip Show. Uh, we're also there individually at Colgo at James Whelan42. And you can find Mark at, at MarkBest, one word. Uh, he's, uh, like I mentioned earlier, uh, got a whole bunch of diverse interests, a really interesting guy to follow. Uh, can't recommend it highly enough. Um, so again, don't forget to hit subscribe and rate the show. We love those five-star ratings. Uh, and Mark Best, uh, thank you so much for making the time uh, to come on and talk about this. Uh, it's been uh, great chatting with you. It's my pleasure. And uh, sorry, James, a bit disparaging about your talk skills, mate. But oh, anyway, hang I, on, he's back. I, 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 I can't believe I've just managed to pop back in just to hear that apparently I've been absolutely trash-talked on this one. <laughs> Four turns, it'll change your life. One, 30 seconds each. Keep it, it low-cooked. It's got to be an easy stake, though. You stick to your wheelhouse, mate. I'm the expert <laughs> in this case. <laughs> Fair enough, mate. Absolutely. Look, I, I can't wait to listen back to to see how you yeah. recommended that I do cook my steak, and I'll do that with a big, gla- a big glass of Shiraz pretty soon, okay? Very good. Lovely to meet you. And you too. Thanks very much, Mark. Cheers. Thanks. Great talking. The show is produced by Rick Salter. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening.